Pastor Brent, good to be with you if you're new. Um, he is risen. You guys are really good at that. I love it. Okay. Well, uh, it's so good to be with you this Resurrection Sunday. Let me ask you as we, get, as we get started this morning, what can we be sure of in this world? What things can we count on? What's a safe bet in this life? Well, uh, Benjamin Franklin had an answer. In November 1789, at age 83, Franklin wrote a letter to a friend in France to update him on some recent events in the United States, which was the Constitution's ratification the year before and the start of a new government. And this is what Franklin wrote to his friend. Our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. You ever heard that before? <laughs> Okay, here was a man in the waning years of his life who struggled with chronic illness, who was facing the certainty of death. And this statement wasn't mere wit, it was reality for him. See, he concluded this very same letter, like the very next lines. He was reflecting on his own mortality, and this is what he wrote to his friend. My health continues much as it has been for some time, except that I grow thinner and weaker so that I cannot expect to hold out much longer. Franklin died six months later, and his maxim proved true. Death is the undefeated champion. See, we're all faced with the same certainty. And what, here's what I want to ask you. What emotions does that conjure up in you? What reaction do you have when you're faced with the certainty of death? Some of us feel afraid. Some want to ignore it, to imagine it's way off in the future. Like, I don't have to worry about that yet. Many of us have felt the grief and the loss and the pain that death causes. And in the face of death, we may wonder, we may ask these questions, does God know? Is he good? Does he care? Will he do something? See, in this world, we may think that death is the undefeated champion. Or is it? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So open with me to John chapter 11. We're in our series in the Gospel of John. And so if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand. Especially if you're new this morning, we love to read through uh, the text of scripture together and have you follow along and see the words for yourself. So John 11 verses 1 through 44 is where we're going to be today. And we're reading the defining moment in the Gospel of John. And we've been doing this series called Full of Grace and Truth since last fall. And we're now coming to the pinnacle moment where Jesus proves that in the face of the most terrible reality, which is death itself, Jesus has not met his match. He shows through the raising of Lazarus that he's not merely in a battle against the religious leaders at this time, which many thought that was happening. He's in a battle against death itself. You see, friends... Before I read this, I just want to say the painful reality of death causes many people in this very passage to ask those same questions. Does God know? Is he good? Does he care? And will he do something? And we're going to see that Jesus answers all of those questions. That we're going to see this account is a preview of the coming attraction, if you will. 
that Jesus himself will rise from the dead and that his own resurrection is secure and he is now the reigning champion over sin and death. So let's read our text together. If you're, again, if you're new, uh, we like to read the text aloud and see the words for ourselves. So I'm going to read the whole passage, John 11, 1 through 44. So listen to this story of this incredible account. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his, hair with her, or his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been there with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, of a, the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Mar said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, what a passage. Okay, remember, friends, this is the defining moment in John's gospel. And everything from here turns towards the cross. This is the seventh miracle of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. The seventh. Seven, the perfect number. This is not an accident that this is recorded as the seventh miracle of Jesus. It's also the fifth I am statement out of seven. And so this event becomes the controversy that drives the Jewish leaders to want to kill Jesus. From here on out, they're bent on destroying him. And the Apostle John wants us to see that the raising of Lazarus is a watershed moment. That when, when we are faced with the ultimate result of sin, a death itself, we're left with the same questions we see in this passage. Does God know? Is he good? Does he care? And is he going to do something? And what I want to do is use those questions to walk through this passage to show you how Jesus answers each question, revealing his mission to defeat sin and death through his own death and resurrection, ultimately pointing to our resurrection at the last day. So let's go through these questions one at a time as we interact with the text here. The first is, does he know? Let's look at verses 1 through 16. So go back to verse 1 with me. This account begins with a desperate plea for help. You kind of see the story unfold fairly quickly here. Lazarus was very sick. His sister Mary and Martha, they sent word to Jesus, this miracle worker. Help, the one you love is sick. Jesus' friend is deathly ill. His sisters are in terrible fear for his life. And look at what Jesus does. Pick it up in verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Okay, let me point out two things that are going on here. 
right? Two observations. The first is that, did you notice the first thing Jesus says in this account is a promise. This sickness will not end in death. But wait, Lazarus ended up dying. So was Jesus mistaken? Or, or does he mean something else? Surely not. Jesus is not mistaken. What does he mean? He's saying that Lazarus' sickness and his suffering will not ultimately end in death, that death is not the end of the story, that Jesus will ensure that death does not win the day. You see, this points to something greater. Friends, listen. The sickness, can I put it this way? The sickness of sin will not win the day. Even if we sometimes wonder whether God sees our suffering or whether he sees our struggle or whether he sees the evil that's going on. As evil as the curse of sin is, as terrible as our pain and illnesses are, as ugly as the destruction of evil is across history, it has a purpose. God is working in the midst of that to bring himself glory. Look at what Jesus says very plainly here. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. It's not so much that God would receive glory. The wording here is very specific. It's so that God's glory would be displayed in the face of such evil. This is why Lazarus is sick. So that God's glory would be displayed through his suffering and grief, through the grief of his sisters, and ultimately through the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And friends, this is a such an incredible lesson for us. The same is for us. God's glory can be displayed through your suffering, namely because in Christ we have an eternal hope that far surpasses the struggles of today. That without this hope, the struggles and griefs of this life would be unbearable. But through Christ, God gets the glory. Okay, that's the first thing that's happening is we see, we see this promise that has these eternal consequences. Okay, second thing we see in verses 5 and 6 is a very peculiar expression of love. Okay, look at what the text says here. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so it's a very strong conjunction there. It literally means therefore. It's causal. He loved them. So when he heard was Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What? His friend is sick, and he waits where he is for two more days. Okay, don't miss this, friends. Jesus expresses his love by delay. This is a surprise in this passage. And look at what Jesus says to his disciples, okay? Because after this delay, then he says he wants to go back near Jerusalem. They're like, hey, wait a second. People were trying to kill you down there. You want to go down there? Pick it up in verse 11 and look at what Jesus says as he's describing this situation. Okay, after they push back on him, in verse 11, it says, after they had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Okay, Jesus had been speaking of his death, the text says. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And then look at Jesus' response. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
Friends, there is a specific purpose in Jesus' delay that he says directly, plainly to his disciples. It is to foster faith so that you may believe, he says, and to clarify that he is the Savior. We're going to see that it's, it's not a malicious thing. He's not delaying out of lack of concern. He's not bad. He is good. It's for the good of everyone involved. Martha, Mary, the disciples, even Lazarus himself. And we're going to see this unfold throughout the rest of the story. And friends, the same goes for us because we will often recognize, and you probably feel this, that often our timing is not God's timing. What are we going to do with that reality? With that tension. Because we sometimes ask in those moments, don't we? Does God know? In those moments of, of delay or where the timing is not what we think, we wonder, does God actually see the struggle that I'm going through? We often have trouble seeing it as an opportunity for God's glory. Or that maybe his delay or his timing is an expression of his love for us. See, friends, this is the promise from Jesus. I want to encourage you with this question. Does he know? Your sickness, your grief, your failure, your struggles with your flesh, your inability to save yourself, these are opportunities as we are humbled in those moments for God's glory to be displayed as his comfort his forgiveness, his redemption, and his promise to raise you to eternal life and the new heavens and new earth come to pass. We see this throughout all of the scriptures, like Abraham, like Joseph, like Ruth, like Esther, like Jeremiah, like Job. Your struggles are the very monuments to God's kindness, his mercy, and his grace. If we have the eyes of faith to see that God's timing it does not mean that he doesn't know about your pain. Okay, so this is our first question. Does God know? And it comes very obvious through this first section. Yes, Jesus knows exactly what's going on and his timing is perfect. So let's go to our second question. Is he good? Okay, let's get back to the story here. As Jesus nears the town of Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem, all right? Martha, ever busy Martha, this is kind of her MO, she heads out to find Jesus along the road. She's like, I'm not waiting for him to get here. I'm going out there to go find him. Now, I really like Martha. I don't know about you guys, but I kind of like Martha a lot. She, she reminds, I, I would bet that she was the older sister. Anyone an older sister? Okay, you could probably recognize a little bit of uh, Martha, all right? So I love Martha. I picture her, I have an older sister, and I kind of picture her like my sister who likes to take charge, make sure things get done, sometimes frustrated at the rest of us who don't do anything to help, you know, that kind of thing, right? That's kind of the older sister. Well, Martha, she goes out to find Jesus. And in verse 21, we see her say to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, friends, we need to be careful to read this appropriately. It's not a rude complaint. It's, it's not an accusation. It's more of a lament. Because Martha, she recognizes that Jesus could have done something. But she probably wonders why he didn't do something. 
And ultimately, this question is of Jesus' goodness. And related to the first question we asked, does God know, we'll often then question if God has the power to prevent illness, if he has the power to stop suffering, if he has the authority to end my pain, why doesn't he do it? If he has the power and he doesn't help me, is he really good? But what Jesus does here is he widens the perspective. He doesn't give a superficial platitude at this moment. Like, oh, Martha, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Look at what he does here. He, he responds with a declaration that the pain she's experiencing will be swallowed up in the ultimate purpose of Jesus' redemption to bring about the renewal of all things. You see, his goodness, friends, hear me clearly. Jesus' goodness is not merely seen in alleviating temporal difficulties on demand, as though Jesus were like a cosmic vending machine that dispenses divine pain medication. <laughs> like whenever we need it, we just go to Jesus and he makes everything feel better. No, his work is grander. It's more complete. It's going to the root of the problem because, friends, what he speaks to Martha is, I am defeating death itself. Look at what he specifically says to her. Look at verse 25. After this exchange, your brother will rise again. I know he will rise again at the resurrection. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is his I am statements. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Okay, I want to point out here, there are two parts to this statement, each with its corresponding commentary. So the first thing Jesus says is, I am the resurrection. Okay, and then the, the very next line, he says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. In other words, when you believe in Jesus, natural death is not the end. When you put your faith in him, you will rise again. I am the resurrection, he says. And then the other one is, I am the life. In other words, his commentary there is, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Once you participate in the resurrection, it will never end. Death will be no more. This means that our resurrection life in Christ will go on forever. And so Jesus' call to, to Martha at this moment is so profound. It is the question of this passage. Do you believe this? Don't miss this, friends. The promise of the resurrection is to be received by faith. There is no transaction that you can do, no work you can do to be good enough, no thing to prove to others or to God that you deserve it. It is by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ by faith that you will participate in the life to come. And Martha's response, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John up to this point, it is the most clear declaration of who Jesus is up to this point in the whole Gospel. Martha has the privilege of being the first one in this Gospel to declare these words. Uh, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Whoa! 
I love her response, friends. And it was, you need to hear this, it was the circumstance of Lazarus' death that that engendered this bold response of faith. Without the difficulty, without that, without that wrenching of what was going on, without that sorrow or pain or the, the desire for Jesus to show his goodness in the face of death, she would not have come to this point of realization of who he is, of this bold proclamation that, yes, he is good. So that's our second question. Is he good? Let's look at the third. Does he care? All right, now the story moves along. Jesus comes to the town of Bethany. And now Mary comes out to meet him, all right? She says the same thing as her sister. And now we see the very heart of Jesus. You see, one of the greatest challenges, let's be honest, one of the greatest challenges in the face of sin and suffering and loss is the question, does Jesus care? And when Jesus arrives, everyone is weeping. Okay, you need to know this about the scenario of what's going on here in the first century. Outward mourning was part of the culture of first century Jewish life. It was required that even a poor family would hire at least two flute players and one professional mourner to wail out loud during the funeral. So you are required to have musicians and you're required to have people outwardly professing uh, 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 this public display of mourning. And so Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the thing you need to know about them is they were definitely not poor. What we know about them from the Gospels is that they were actually a very wealthy family. So there's a really good chance they had a whole crowd of people wailing out loud and an entire orchestra playing a dirge. Kind of like our horn players this morning, Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding, it wasn't a dirge, it sounded great. <laughs> little dig there at my friends, okay. What I love about this situation is that when Jesus saw them weeping, when he saw them weeping, the text says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is the key, friends. What does this word deeply moved mean? Okay, in, in a, the secular Greek world, the word referred to, this word deeply moved in spirit, or deeply moved, it referred to the snorting of horses when they're agitated. So this word deeply moved is when like a horse blows out of their nose when they're agitated at something, right? Now, when this word is applied to people, it implies, it suggests anger or outrage or indignation. So sometimes when we read this word, we imagine Jesus as simply sad. But what this word means is that Jesus, when he was deeply moved in spirit, he was feeling an intense emotion or outrage or indignation, not merely loss or grief or sympathy. So imagine what happens at this moment. They take Jesus to the tomb and the text simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus looks upon the grave and tears come rolling down his cheeks. Friends, you need to hear this. He's not merely crying at the loss of Lazarus. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus in just a few moments. 
Rather, these are tears of lament and sorrow and outrage at the existence of death itself. And Jesus is deeply moved by the pain that he sees it causing the people he loves. There's a, a theologian named B.B. Warfield from about a, a little over 100 years ago who wrote an essay called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in this essay, Warfield writes about John 11. And this is what he says about John 11, this text of Jesus' interactions here as he raises Lazarus. He says, It would be impossible, therefore, for Jesus to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent or unmoved. He could not stand there and not have this emotions rising up within him. Warfield says that this moment when Jesus encounters the tomb of Lazarus, that compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. In other words, it would be a contradiction for Jesus to merely feel sad at the reality of death and not also feel outraged at the ugliness of death at the same moment. As the very Son of God, the author of life, he not only feels compassion for the bereaved and the grief and the loss of his friend, but he is indignant at the hideous effects of the curse of sin. Friends, he knows what grief feels like. He knows what you feel like. And maybe you felt these same emotions. Deep grief and sorrow mixed with a sense of indignation that the ugliness of this, that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Friends, we should weep because death is wrong. It's a tragedy. It's ugly. It's the fruit of our sin. It's a loss that shouldn't be. It's troubling. It's against all that God intended and designed for us. And dear friends, Jesus knows what your pain feels like and he cares about you. He cares so much that he will do something about it. This is our last question. Okay, will he do something? Pick it up in verse 38. The text says that Jesus once again was deeply moved. That's that same word of his indignation as he comes to the tomb. And he simply says, take away the stone. Now, Martha's response here, it's somewhat comical. She, she obviously, she doesn't understand that Jesus is about to raise Lazarus right now. She still doesn't get that. But why would she? It's extraordinary to think that that could possibly happen. And so she protests. She says, Lazarus has been in there four days. Now, there's some commentators who point out that the four days is really significant. It was commonly held in first century Judaism that the soul would hover over the dead body for three days. And once it started to see the, the decomposition of the body, then it would depart. And so by day four, the person was really dead. That's what they thought, all right? Now, obviously, without the kind of medical technology we have, I mean, there were cases where someone might be unconscious or in a coma or something. They might come back to life. And, and so it's not an accident here. Now, Jesus is not necessarily agreeing with this belief, but it is no accident John mentions four days because here's why. Even the most skeptical reader of this gospel in the first century would not be able to argue that Jesus didn't really raise Lazarus, that maybe he wasn't really dead. 
See, what I love is as the, as the King James Version puts it so aptly with Martha's response, she says, he stinketh. <laughs> See, Jesus reminds Martha of his ultimate purpose. In verse 40, he says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? This is the very theme of his prayer as they roll away the stone, that the glory of God would be displayed through our suffering and pain that will bring a genuine response of faith, trust, surrender, and humility to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And here's the moment of truth. They roll away the stone. Now, tombs in the first century, especially for wealthy families like Lazarus, were often carved out of rock and they had multiple slots for bodies to be buried. And so take a look at this picture. Uh, I took this picture when I was visiting Israel on a study tour. And this is a tomb in the hills outside of Jerusalem in Judea. And this is a tomb of a wealthy family, and you could see there's slots down the side where there would be multiple family members all buried together in this tomb with a stone rolled across the entrance. Now, here Jesus calls out in a loud voice for a specific person, namely Lazarus. Now, some commentators have said that perhaps if Jesus didn't call Lazarus by name, that every single dead person in that tomb would come out. <laughs> so he's very specific here. He leans in and he says, Lazarus, come out. Friends, this is an enacted parable of what is to come. If you trust in Jesus, he will call you by name at the resurrection at the last day. He will awaken his sleepers. The ones who belong to him, the ones he loves, he will call you by name and you will rise to resurrection life forevermore. Friends, if you've ever wondered, will Jesus do something about the pain and the evil and the suffering and sin that I'm experiencing? He has promised to return, to remove that curse of sin and death forevermore in the new heavens and new earth. Friends, the very one who shed tears of outrage at the curse of sin and death has triumphed in his own death and resurrection and we await the glory of that day when what is promised what is pictured in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, becomes a reality. Listen to these words that we await with joy and with hope. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. The one who wept at death. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, trust in the goodness of Jesus. Trust in what he has done. He knows. He is good. 
He cares, and he has done something about it. He has achieved the ultimate destruction of death itself. No longer the undefeated champion Jesus now reigns over all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we glorify you today. In your great power, you have risen from the grave, conquering our sin and death forever. And Lord, we know that that promise is true. When we trust in you, we find hope everlasting because we will be raised when you call our name. When you, the one who wept at the ugly result of the curse of sin, death itself, you wept, Lord, you will wipe away our tears as we stand before you in glory in our resurrection bodies. What hope there is. Thank you, Lord, for your life you have given us that is a gift we receive by faith. We trust you, Lord Jesus, for everything in life and death. In Jesus' name, amen.